Section 13 of Red Rubber The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Red Rubber The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade in the Congo by Edmund Dean Morell. Section 13 Is There a Redeeming Feature? Part 3 Justice and the Friendly Critic The administration of justice in the Congo is of such an impartial and protective character, and is so highly appreciated by the natives themselves, that they come in ever-increasing numbers and from great distances to submit to the jurisdiction of the whites, sick, De Camp, New Africa. The Congo administration claims to have introduced justice into its territories. Justice, the virtue which consists in giving everyone his due. Clearly, it is not a claim to this sort of justice on the Congo which requires discussion. No. What is contended by, and for the Congo's state, is that it has instituted a judicial system which is a very different thing. A judicial system can be pure or impure. It can be an instrument of protection to the weakest. It can be an engine of tyranny under which the weak are ground to powder with every appearance of strict legality. It is claimed for the judicial system of the Congo state in that familiar and inimitable language of lofty sentiment studded with rhetorical flowers that it corresponds with a double mission to be fulfilled by the government to solve the essentially judicial litigation which can arise in social life and to punish in conformity with the law the violation of social order there exists in the capital of the congo state boma on the lower river a court of first instance and an appeal court and there are thirteen territorial tribunals scattered throughout a country some eight hundred thousand square miles in extent. For all criminal cases the appeal court at Boma is supreme. Beyond it there is no appeal. The superior council in Brussels, whose members are appointed by the king and which never meets, is theoretically a court of cassation for civil cases. The first essential of a pure judicial system is a magistracy independent of executive influence or control. Under a regime of absolute autocracy, such conditions are unlikely. In the Congo state, they are obviously impossible, and it is one of the many amazing things in the report of the Congo Commission of Inquiry that, having seen the Congo system at work, Having noted the breaking of the paper laws of the land by the executive and by individuals throughout the length and breadth of their peregrinations, the commissioners should have pleaded earnestly and strenuously for a magistracy free from executive interference, a plea which has necessarily been rejected by the sovereign autocrat. The members of the Congo magistracy are, from highest to lowest, nominated by the king. The governor-general is the king's mandatory, 
and the public prosecutor's office is exercised under the governor-general's authority. The latter can stop prosecution in criminal cases, and can suspend proceedings in criminal cases at any stage after they have been instituted. He does so habitually, as the report of the Commission of Inquiry admits. It could not be otherwise, seeing that the executive itself is the supreme violator of the law. The public prosecutor and his assistants are, consequently, the servants of the executive, that is to say, of the governor-general, and the judicial system of the Congo state exists only to give an appearance of legality to what is indefensible, to invest the rubber slave trade in the eyes of Europe with the garb of respectability, to make the world believe that a legal machinery exists to protect the native, when that machinery is used, in point of fact, to minister to his oppression. With such a system, the effective administration of justice is, of course, impossible, and it is not the least of the negligences of British governments, that they should have permitted for all these years British subjects on the Congo, whether white or black, to be subject to the jurisdiction of the Congo courts. Moreover, that situation still obtains. Under it, one Englishman was hung out of hand. English missionaries are now being harried for speaking the admitted truth before the Commission of Inquiry, and a very considerable number of British colored subjects have suffered, and doubtless now suffer, the gravest wrongs. I refer to this subject again in Section 5. There is some little difficulty in conveying to the ordinary mind the moral atmospheric conditions prevailing on the Congo. They are so charged with chicanery and deceit, so utterly abnormal in every sense of the word, that long experience alone can properly assimilate them, and the knowledge thus acquired is not communicable in a couple of sentences. One can only ask the reader to bear in mind that the Congo state surrounded itself from the earliest days with the trappings not of an ordinary colonial undertaking, but of a professedly philanthropic institution, and that when it started out on its career of piracy and brigandage in 1892, these trappings clung about it, forming a raiment well-nigh impenetrable to criticism. In the succeeding years, King Leopold, himself highly proficient, uniquely so indeed, in statecraft of a certain order, has attached to his interests by various means men schooled in all the subtleties of the law. Never, probably, has greater ingenuity been displayed to give black the semblance of white, or at least of gray. Laws innumerable have been drafted and flourished in the eyes of Europe, securing to the Congo native freedom absolute and entire, ensuring for him such beatitude in this life and such a quasi-certitude of salvation in the next, that as Lord Fitzmaurice, speaking in the House of Lords in July last, wittily put it, some of your lordships, on leaving this house, might almost be disposed to take a ticket immediately for the Congo. 
the torchlight of truth has finally succeeded in reducing these trappings to dust and ashes but the atmosphere is not yet rid of the particles so it is that in considering the judicial system of the congo which cannot be separated and treated as a thing apart from other sections of the congo system this factor must ever be present in the mind when, in diplomatic correspondence, official publications, and in the emanations from the press bureau, King Leopold's secretaries and scribes dwell with emphasis upon la justice congolaise, as though the Congo judicial system was by them regarded as the greatest proven tribute, with the suppression of the Arab and the gin bottle, to administrative genius, one has to point out that the Congo administration does not, and never has administered in any known acceptance of the term. As Professor Catier truly says, after twenty years it has not even begun to administrate. Everything must be begun afresh. An early duty of a civilized administration in tropical Africa is to recognize, uphold, and strengthen where required the existing native courts, the chief sitting in council with his elders, the machinery for the preservation of law and order, founded upon indigenous customs, whose essential justice and suitability investigation seldom fails to reveal. Bound up in this, a careful and constant study by the administrative officials of the laws and usages of the people, their practices in regard to chieftainship, hereditary succession, marriage, tenure of land, and other property, their entire social fabric, in short, is the necessary, indeed the principal business of the administration of a tropical African dependency. But such trivialities as these find no part or lot in the Leopoldian conception. They are absolutely foreign to it. There is not a recognized native court from one end of the Congo territory to the other. If you speak to a Congolese official about native customs, laws, and what not, he simply laughs at you. He has no time for that sort of thing. His duty is to maintain the revenue, and if possible, increase it, if he is stationed in one of the revenue-producing districts, and revenue means rubber, ivory, and gum copal. If he is stationed in one of the great food-producing districts, his duty is to superintend the output, distribution, and dispatch of supplies, and to see that every village within the taxable area delivers fortnightly or weekly, as the case may be, its fixed quota. This is a task of considerable magnitude. There are tens upon tens of thousands of soldiers, and their women and retainers, workmen, laborers of all sorts, etc., engaged directly or indirectly in different branches of the rubber slave trade. They must be fed, and the Congo administration— unlike civilized administrations, does not import large quantities of dried fish, rice, and so on for the consumption of its retainers.
Therefore, those retainers live on the land, and as the overwhelming proportion of the get-at-able native population in the rubber districts is employed from January 1 to December 31 in searching the forests for that article, the food supplies for the great station centers in those districts. The outstations are supplied locally, and the sentries in the villages look to the village women, not their own, to support them, have to come from a distance from other districts. When the enormous number of mouths to be fed is considered, and the continuous nature of the demand, it will be readily understood how vital to the working of the system it is that the supply should be kept up without a hitch. What dangers would be incurred if a break of any duration occurred? The report of the Congo Commission of Inquiry points this out, and states explicitly that its remarks are of general application to all the great station centers. It admits, indeed, that sometimes a portion of the workmen, soldiers, and prisoners are often deprived of food for twenty-four hours. No surprise need be felt that the hostages, e.g. prisoners, are sometimes forgotten. It will be seen, then, that an indispensable feature of the rubber slave trade is the forcible maintenance of a considerable section of the population under pressure for the production of foodstuffs as unrelaxing as the pressure for revenue. Between these two primal needs, revenue, e.g. rubber, and food, the Congolese official has time for nothing, everything else lying outside the sphere of what is really required of him, save in a few and strictly exceptional cases where, owing to a variety of causes, different conditions prevail. With what does the magistracy in the Congo concern itself? In the Europeanized towns of Boma and Matadi, a number of trumpery little cases of litigation rather encouraged than otherwise occur. In the true Congo, the vast upper region stretching from Stanley Pool to the Nile and the Great Lakes, there is no litigation to speak of. There are no competing commercial firms, and there is no room for litigation between master and slave. The wretched native has been taught by bitter experience to shun Bula Matadi in whatever guise he appears before him. The commission of inquiry sorrowfully recognized that the evangelical missionary has come to be regarded by the native as the only representative of equity and justice, thus conferring upon him a prestige the commissioners add, which should be invested in the magistrates. In the distinguished magistrates, who opine that to drag mothers, wives, and young girls from their homes, and thrust them into hostage houses, is the most humane form of coercion? The commissioners are silent on this point. The truth of the matter is that the principal employment of the Congo magistrates consists in dealing with the crimes committed by Europeans upon the natives, in dealing, that is, with the fatal and inevitable accompaniment to the system of which the supreme local executive is the inspirer, or rather the transmitter and applier, 
inspiration emanating from Brussels, whence comes every initiative, as Professor Catier rightly says. If this is the principal employment of the magistrates, the chief object is to make an impeccable outward simulacry of stern activity compatible with securing immunity for the criminal. The task is easier than it sounds for the simple reason that there is no publicity. Out of the innumerable judgments delivered by the Congo courts in cases of atrocity during the course of the last decade, no complete text and extracts from one judgment only has ever been published in Belgium. It sounds incredible. It is, however, strictly true. The government of Monsieur de Smet de Neyer has been a very complacent one for the sovereign of the Congo state. Were those judgments accessible to the Belgian public, now that its eyes are partly open to the verities of this awful business, the effect produced by the report of the Commission of Inquiry would be slight by comparison. Only two complete texts have ever reached this country, that of the appeal court in the Caudron case, and that of the territorial tribunal of Stanleyville in the case of John Brown, a native of Lagos. The former was, and remains, with the exception of the official circulars, Consul Caseman's report, and the report of the Commission of Inquiry, the most revealing document connected with Congo affairs, which has ever seen the light of day. It was the first official document from the Congo side of any importance which we had been able to acquire. And not only did it show the complicity of the supreme executive in the rubber slave trade, but it convicted the governor-general himself of violating the laws of the land. The other judgment is evidential of the kind of justice which a British-colored subject, even one with Brown's exceptional position and record on the Congo, can expect if he comes to loggerheads with the superior official. Hence, it is not difficult to understand that this absence of publicity facilitates very greatly the object to which I have referred. The public is informed now and then that numerous arrests have taken place and that several agents have been sentenced. The press bureau circulates a cleverly worded dispatch to the Continental and American journals affiliated to it, in which individual excesses inseparable from every colonizing enterprise are deplored, and the magnificent independence, notwithstanding the odious calumnies of Mr. Morell and his gang, of the Congo magistracy proclaimed, there the matter ends, so far as the public is concerned, of the subsequent fate of these men, who are all subordinate agents from the outstations in the bush, nothing ever transpires. I have been able to trace one or two, not without considerable difficulty. Their history is a little diversified, but one characteristic is common to all. After serving an infinitesimal part of their sentence, they come back very quietly to Belgium. Here a mysterious providence ensures their keeping quiet. Sometimes a local job is found for them. One man, for instance, who was a bootmaker's assistant by trade, 
before being given unlimited power over men and women in the Congo forest, was comfortably set up in a comfortable little shop of his own. His sentence in the Congo was ten years. He served eight months. Another, who has married and settled down in the haberdashery line, was given a life sentence on the Congo for burning an old woman alive. A foreign appointment, preferably in Egypt, it would seem, is rather usual. No one knows, of course, who the fairy godmother or father is, but the effect is potent. Silence is ensured. That is the main point. I have received some very curious letters from Belgium in the last few years, some with appeals, some with offers of the most varied description. One professed to be from the father of a young Belgian, sentenced to ten years. A curious sequel attached to it. The writer stated that he had appealed to one of the Congo state secretaries in Brussels on his son's behalf, on the plea that the latter had merely carried out the instructions of his superior. This high official had replied that a reprieve would be difficult to arrange just now in view of the agitation in England, but he would consider what might be done. Six months had passed since this meeting, but the youth still lingered in Beaumagayon. The writer added that he had not told the high official in question one thing. That was that he, the writer, possessed documentary proof of his son's obedience to orders in the shape of a letter from his chief, an officer of high rank in the Congo army. Would I like to see the letter? I answered that it would be very interesting to see the letter, repeating in my reply the name he had mentioned. I did not expect an answer, and I was not disappointed. But two months later I noticed in a published passenger list of the latest homeward-bound Congo mail steamer the name of my correspondent's son. My letter, as I anticipated, had evidently been used to some purpose with the high official aforesaid. Does this absence of publicity and the advantages it entails for the Congo administration mean that the Congo magistracy must be regarded as individually and collectively corrupt? Not at all. That, as a body, it is inoculated with the virus of the system, one need seek no better indication than that afforded by the views quoted in the report of the Commission of Inquiry of some of its distinguished members on the subject of women hostages. That in itself is about the most damaging revelation which could well be imagined especially when we are told in the publications of the press bureau that the taking of women hostages is contrary to the written law i have a letter before me from one of the assistants of the public prosecutor at boma offering for a consideration the documents which in his capacity of magistrate he possesses documents which would astonish the world the world has ceased to be astonished at King Leopold and all his works. Truly, the usual type of European on the Congo, whether fulfilling the rule of magistrate or not, is worthy of his royal master. I have no doubt that there are honest individuals among the Congo magistracy, 
and the particulars given in Father Vermich's recent book throw a flood of light on the way in which the honest magistrate is hampered at every turn by the executive. When engaged in gathering evidence for the prosecution of a European criminal, but, assuming for the sake of argument that every Congo magistrate were above suspicion, there would still be a barrier which neither the public prosecutor nor a fortiori his assistants can cross. The publication of the Cordron Judgment and the events which followed it illustrated this very forcibly. That publication, as I have remarked, was a staggering blow to the Congo administration, and King Leopold sought to parry it by issuing a special manifesto addressed to the governor-general, and calling upon the public prosecutor and his assistants, the substitutes or deputy attorneys, to search for all officials, no matter who they may be, who had participated in the particular rubber raids the scapegoat Cordron had been concerned in. The manifesto further stated that the government, that is, the king, intends that there shall be no indulgence shown towards any of its officials who may participate in blamable acts towards the native people. With that nicety of expression and enthusiasm for righteousness which is impressed so forcibly on these royal promulgations, the manifesto proceeds to anticipate that all officials, no matter who they may be, have been triumphantly dragged out of their hiding places by a noble and perspiring public prosecutor, and declares, if the constituent elements of participation do not exist, and if the prosecution fails, it will remain for the superior authority to examine if the agents of the state, whose administrative responsibility appears nevertheless, to be implicated in these cases either by their acts or by their inaction shall not be the object of disciplinary measures of a seriousness proportionate to the faults which they have committed. To the uninitiated this evidence of pained surprise, barely concealed indignation, and resolute intent on the part of the Emperor of the Congo conveyed sincerity, and the press bureau hastened to improve the occasion. The judgment of the appeal court was such, of course, that had the instructions in the King's manifesto to the Governor-General been carried out, the first warrant of arrest issued by the public prosecutor would have been against the Governor-General, whom the judgment clearly indicated for the committal of an illegal act involving in its train cruelty and outrage upon natives. The next person to be arrested would have been the district commissioner, i.e., an official ranking, with two exceptions, next to the Governor-General. The third would have been the officer in command of the government troops who assisted Cardron in his raids, then the manager in Africa of the company whose servant Cardron was, and so on all down the scale. The prison at Boma would have had to have been enlarged. It is hardly necessary to add that the magistracy was powerless to do anything of the kind. Caudron was defended, a rare occurrence in the Congo, 
and the prosecution did not, and could not deny, that Cardron was merely a servant of the executive, that he received with the consent of the executive, which took three-fourths of the profits derived by the company from its rubber operations, three per cent commission on all the rubber he secured, that the company had no lands of its own, and was merely acting as rubber collector for the executive, that its raids were conducted with the open assistance of government officers and troops, that the arms and munitions of war utilized by the company constituted in itself the proof that the executive recognized the right of the company to employ them, since they could by law only be placed in the hands of those specially so authorized by the governor-general, that every rifle and cartridge in the possession of the company was passed through the custom-house and conveyed to the company's station in government vessels, that in the year 1903, the year of Cardron's raids, these government vessels had conveyed 40,000 rounds of ball cartridge to the company, and finally that, for the results of such illegal raids, the executive itself was solely responsible. Particulars of the trial of the man Van Kelken, an outstation subordinate of another of the rubber companies, on December 9, 1904, which have reached me, are merely a replica of the Cardron business. His performances had been denounced by the missionaries. They included the seizing of women hostages, arming sentries with albinis, etc. Van Kelken conducted his own defense, in the course of which he made no attempt to deny taking hostages, and produced as his justification for doing so a letter from his district commissioner, and a circular signed by the governor-general. The latter document deplored the decrease in the rubber output from the concession, and reminded the company's agents that they were entitled to exercise bodily constraint upon the natives. The defendant pointed out that he was not concerned with the legality or illegality of such measures. He merely carried them out as he was bid. As for the detention of hostages, there was no secret about it, and every agent was called upon to furnish in writing monthly lists of his prisoners, one for his manager, the other for the executive. Needless to say, the penalty inflicted upon Van Kelken was not severe, and he has long since returned to Europe. Needless to say also that proceedings against the Governor-General and the District Commissioner for their illegal instructions were not taken. The defense of Dutiege, another subordinate agent, whose sentence of fifteen years by the Court of First Instance was reduced to ten years by the Court of Appeal in November 1904, ran on much the same lines. This case was notable for an incident which makes one rub one's eyes and wonder whether one is living in the twentieth century. A favorite pastime of Dutiege consisted in forcing natives, who brought him badly prepared rubber, to eat it. The court held that the introduction into the stomach by the mouth of an elastic substance 
in gerunds was not productive of after-ill effects and that the subsequent illness and death of the men who had been compelled to eat the badly prepared rubber could not therefore be attributed to this the charges included other counts that of murder and complicity in murder but the reduction of the sentence was on the grounds stated above end of section thirteen